Well, hi there, and welcome to Consortio Day, a podcast about partnering with God to do sacred work. My name is John Chandler, and I'm a spiritual director, and I just love conversations like I have on this podcast. I love having them one-on-one with people through spiritual direction, but I also just love meeting new people and exploring what their practices look like. And so that's what happens on this podcast. I interview people who do sacred work of some kind about what does it look like for them to partner with the divine? What are their practices? What are the things that they consider uh, so that they can incorporate some kind of sacred presence, some kind of uh, Trinitarian awareness into the work that they do? And Certainly, the person I interview today uh, reflects that very well. This interview is with Jared Boyd. And I first ran across Jared a few years ago and just realized this is somebody who's doing some things that I really appreciate and I really admire uh, and respect. And so I was really thankful to have Jared join me on the podcast. Jared is a pastor, uh, a former church planter in the Vineyard Churches. He is a spiritual director. And as you'll hear him talk about today, he is the founding director of the Order of the Common Life. And this will be referenced in the conversation as well. But I previously interviewed J.R. Roscoe, who is participating in the Order of the Common Life. So you can listen to his interview, or maybe you remember it, and hear a little bit about both sides of of what that might look like. In the meantime, before we get into this interview, I do want to say that we are approaching fall rapidly, and I have two new... Uh, cohorts that are forming for this fall. There is a practicing examine cohort, and there is a practicing Sabbath cohort. And each of those lasts anywhere from uh, four to six sessions, coming together with others who are also trying to learn about these practices, but even more so learn how to incorporate these practices. And so I find a cohort works really well for learning practices like these, because you can share with others what you're learning You can share with others some of your own struggles with it, but you can also um, be inspired as you hear from what's going on with other people as they're exploring practices like this. So if you're interested in either of those for this fall, you can go to formationcohorts.com and read a little bit more about them, and I'd be glad to answer questions for you that you might have if they're not answered on that page. I'm also, and you'll hear Jared today talking about centering prayer being a key practice for him, and uh, currently in development for a practicing centering prayer cohort that I hope to launch in 2024. And so if you want to join my mailing list, if that interests you, you are welcome to do that as well. That's all available on my website, formationcohorts.com. We'll take you to that particular page on my website. Thanks so much for listening. And here we are with Jared Boyd. Jared, it is it is good to be with you today. I, I appreciate um I appreciate you making the space for this. I know I reached out to you several months ago, and you were in the midst of getting ready to finalize edits on a book. Um, so I appreciate you saying, yes, I'd love to do that. And I've been looking forward to this for many months now. So uh, let's let's jump in. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what I like to call the context of your sacred work? Tell us about the work that you do. Yeah, thank you. It's really great to be here um, with you. It's uh, It's always nice just to find people who are our kindred yeah. spirits. Um, yeah. So the context of my work, I would say, has been as a parent, as a pastor, mm-hmm. as a spiritual director, and as a founder of uh, a 21st century religious order. So uh, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. But I, I honestly think that um, most of the context of my work, I probably think about um, as a father. So I have four girls. Um, oh, wow. My first book was out of that experience of trying to figure out how to help my my kids pray. So that book's called Imaginative Prayer, and I draw on um, the exercise of Saint Ignatius um, to try to help uh, you know parents and kids have a shared imaginative experience of God and, and of God's love uh, for themselves and for the world. So I think the most formative place, the most formative context for me, has been in my family. Yeah, um, trying to figure out how to be a dad. Um, um, my wife Jamie and I we've been married for, oops, I think twenty three years. It's coming up. <laughs> Sorry, it's coming up on twenty three years. Um, and then I've been pastoring um, in some form for the past twelve or fifteen years. Most recently as a, a church planter, mm-hmm. uh, planting the Abbey in Columbus, Ohio, which uh, I just actually closed as a church mm-hmm. plant. So we were live for seven years. 
trying to bring together the contemplative, the charismatic, and the sacramental traditions of the church. So we're yeah. part of the vineyard movement. Mm-hmm. And long story short is that we just did not have the capacity to, to sort of get out of COVID times. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm in a bit of a transition. Um, but along the way, I um, my primary sort of vocational calling is this work of reimagining religious vocations for the 21st century. And you know, I think that kind of language, I'm, I'm really used to people not knowing what that means, but sure, yeah. re- religious vocations are like, you think about, you know, monks and nuns and people who join religious orders. So the most contemporary example that I usually bring up would be like, everyone knows who Mother Teresa is. Mm-hmm. So she, you know, she founded an order with a particular work of uh, serving and being among the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. Um, you know, there's a television show uh, called Call the Midwives. Have you ever? Oh, yes. Yeah. You've heard of that show? So yeah. um, those those women, they were, they were part of a religious order um, living in England. And um, so they weren't like off into the wilderness. They were like embedded right. into culture. They were working... Yeah loving people locally, delivering babies among the poor, uh, while yeah. also praying all hours of the day and night uh, together. So that that religious order concept has primarily been at work in the Catholic Church historically, as well as in the Anglican Church. And about 10 years ago, I, I felt like a really clear call from God to try to reimagine what that could look like uh, for the 21st century outside of the context of the Catholic church. So that's the primary context of my work over the past, you know, eight to 10 years. Um, and that's, that's where the order of the common life falls in. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I'll, I'll call out here just for reference that, um, previously I had on the podcast, J.R. Roscoe, who, um, is, you know, within and working within the order of the common life. And so that might be, you know, context, just someone to go back and listen to that one if they hurt, because I can hear the other side, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. of someone who's experiencing it as a, I don't even know the proper terminology, but someone who's participating yeah. in the order of the common life. Yeah. Yeah. So, JR, so we, we've maintained sort of historic terminology um, yeah. because we just think it creates uh, a thick thread to the history of this work that we're doing. So, JR would be considered a novice in the order. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we could we could go into that, but yeah, Jr. has been a, a real gift uh, to us, and he's helping us reimagine what that might look like in in his tradition as an Anglican priest in yeah. uh, the diocese uh, for the sake of others uh, under under Bishop Todd Hunter. Yeah, and, and I I know you um, you mentioned you know the the streams that your church tried to exist in when I was yeah. in when I was an undergrad years ago. I was in Southern California, and I was fifteen minutes from the original. I think it was the original vineyard in Anaheim. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we even rented that space for our graduation. So oh, wow. I was in that space multiple times. But I, I, for a church history class, you know, I was assigned. We all had to write the history of a denomination and I got vineyard. Hmm. Um, so I know, I know some of that early history. But then I haven't, you know, for the last, that was 30 years ago, Jared. So, <laughs> hmm. you know, I've only been, you know, I haven't been involved and connected with vineyard until I did my spiritual form, uh, spiritual direction training with sustainable faith, which has a lot of um, vineyard influence. And the thing that impressed me and I really appreciated about that is that seems like there is a deep contemplative stream that has emerged in vineyard um, mm-hmm. that I don't know that I recall reading about when I wrote that 30 years ago, <laughs> mm. wrote that report. And so, I'd love to hear a little bit about how does how do you see that contemplative existing alongside you know the charismatic because some you know some of what people see from outside is you know some of the even some of the more extreme stuff that's happened in vineyard and other places but yet there is this beautiful uh, contemplative stream so how how is how have you seen that surface and what's what's drawn you to that. Yeah, man, this is one of my favorite questions um, because historically, you know, we don't often think about the contemplative and the charismatic existing in the same space. Right. And really historically, you have to, you have to really dig 
to find where those two things have been brought together. Yeah. But I think for me, I, what I would say is that, you know, I, the part of the story that I love to tell is I, I came into the vineyard in 1994 in Cincinnati, Ohio, when I was about 16 years old and I came into the vineyard, it was a worship gathering and I had never experienced worship like that before in my life. Um, hmm. And, sure. you know, there was something really special happening in the vineyard in those years in the nineties, yeah. there's this Toronto outpouring, this, this blessing that's happening up in Toronto all sorts of charismatic things happening, but I had never experienced any of that. Even in my time at the vineyard in Cincinnati, I don't think I ever experienced any of that. But I remember the first time I came, what I did experience was in worship, you know, I just sort of opened up my hands or upward turned at my waist and I had an encounter with God Yeah, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that encounter was the love of God being poured out into me. There's no doubt in my mind that that's what happened mm. to me. So what began to happen later on in my life in my mid twenties is I was, I was wrestling through some deconstruction, sure. um, long before anybody else was doing so. It was a very lonely time for me because yeah. deconstruction was not a thing in 2006 when I was going through it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, but what began to happen is I began to be drawn towards this more contemplative stream. I was reading, um, some stuff out of that stream. I began praying the daily hours with Phyllis Tickle's books. Mm, yeah. um, you know, I began seeing a spiritual director for the first time uh, at some point. Um, you mentioned sustainable faith. So Dave Nixon was an early mentor to me in my mid-20s and mm. into my 30s, um, became a really dear friend and important person in my life in that season. And he introduced me to, to, to Phyllis Tickle's book of uh, prayers. And so I began to pray those things. And then what I discovered John, is that the deeper, th the deeper that I went into some of the contemplative practices like solitude and prayer, contemplative prayer, centering prayer, yeah. um, the same experience that happened to me at the, at the vineyard in 1994 began to revisit me. Yeah. And so I was having these um, kind of charismatic or historically we may even say mystical experiences um, mm -hmm. where God's love to me was being revealed in the, the early quiet morning hours of this little red chair that I, yeah. uh, that I sat in every single morning that I bought at a garage sale for $10. And so yeah. for me, that's when they started coming together. And then in hindsight, what I began to discover that in, in the history of the vineyard, um, which is why I still very much consider this my tribe, you know, uh, John Wimber was a Quaker. They used yeah. to just yeah. wait on the presence of God. And so you go back to those early days, and I've heard some of the folks in that very first Bible study that would become the vineyard, they, they have said that what they began with was sitting in silence until they felt like God was speaking to them. And, um, and so I, I think actually like there's a thread of the contemplative deeply embedded in the vineyard, which is why the vineyard has become a place where we presently are able to see like, Oh, we actually have sort of the bones and the skeleton yeah. for the contemplative in a way that, you know, maybe, maybe some other, um, denominations or tribes or kinds of expressions of church, maybe just don't have the natural sort of skeleton embedded into that. But the vineyard, we believe in the experience of God. Yeah. And the contemplative is, is just posturing our life towards that experience and welcoming the love of God into our life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's, that's what I feel like I, you know, as someone standing on the edge observing, primarily through my sustainable faith experience, but yeah, it feels very natural and feels very uh, at home to see this contemplative tradition within a tradition that from the outside I would not have perceived, hey, contemplative is going to thrive there, you know? But, yeah, that's right. But seeing it firsthand, it, it really does make a lot of sense. So, yeah, thanks for, thanks for exploring that a little bit. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, that... That being the case, I would love to talk a little bit just about, you know, I, I, I asked the question, what role does partnering with God play in your work? Um, 
and, and because the nature of this, you know, consortio day is my very um, completely never took a Latin class in my life. Mm. This is just me Googling, how do you say partnering with God in Latin? And this is my best guess. <laughs> so, mm. because the work that we're doing is sacred work is all about, you know, how do I partner with God in this work? Um, so, yeah, my, and it seems like then such a obvious question, but it sets us up for so many other things we reflect on for the work that you're doing now certainly as a spiritual director, but even more so as leading a nonprofit. What, what role does partnering with God play in your work? What, is it, what does it look like to commune with God to lead um, a religious order as opposed to if you were, you know, just working in an NGO, you know, doing justice work? What, what's the difference there? Yeah. Man, this is another really great question. Thanks for asking that. Um, I, I struggle with this a little bit because mm-hmm. – um, if I'm really honest, which I will be, <laughs> what I most want um, to do with my time and energy mm-hmm. is to simply listen to people in spiritual direction, right. to pray, yeah. um, to be alone. I, I crave solitude um, to be with God. I mean, I, in many ways, am very much shaped for the work. But then leading an organization, trying to figure out how to recontextualize this very historic thing um, that has sort of came out of the, you know, medieval period in, in many ways. I mean, even Franciscans still wear robes and, and a rope around their waist. So it's like, how do, how do I bring all of this work into the 21st century? It requires a tremendous amount of leadership and grit and, um, leading organizationally in ways that honestly I'm just really stretched in all of the time. Um, because what I want to do is I want to just study and pray and be with people. And so, um, I find resonance with you here right now, right? Yeah. That is a, that is a tension of starting an organization as a, somebody with a pastoral heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, but how do I partner with God is that, um, I believe that God has called me to this. And so, and God keeps calling me to this. And so my, my partnership with God is to believe God and to believe my own like felt sense of invitation to this vocation and then to, to respond accordingly in a sense of like, I guess there's more for me than just being a contemplative or being a pastor. Mm-hmm. It sounds like what God has called me to do is to try to create a container where other people also get to live. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's the hard work. Um, so I'm, I'm partnering with God, you know, in a sense of like, God is saying you, this is a, a vocation, a calling that I've, that I've given you is to create this thing where other people also get to live and thrive. Um, even if it includes doing a bunch of things that you're not naturally inclined to do. Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and so do you think, so do you think that that, uh, comes about almost as a super supernatural gifting for this season of the organization to sustain you, or do you feel like that it is um, that it's ju- that it's it's merely just the strength to do something that feels like you're working in a weakness? I guess those aren't necessarily different, but you understand what? I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I think yeah, I think it is both. Um, yeah. I do think there's wind at my back um, yeah. to learn and to grow, um, and then the reality is is that is that as God tends to do when, you know, when God is calling you to something, he, he then yeah. brings people around you that sure. that are here to help. And so that's, what's been unfolding for me over the past half decade. Um, you know, I started this work in 2011 um, very, very quietly. And it was actually first housed under sustainable faith. And so hmm. uh, originally it was the order of sustainable faith. And then we discerned along the way that, you know, this thing that's sort of grown up into the greenhouse of this other organization really needs to live on its own. And so we, we discerned really well um, collaboratively um, that, that I just needed to take this organization uh, or this work outside of, of that organization and sort of plant it in the field. That's yeah. the analogy. So, yeah. and, and in that time, God continues to bring people around that say, man, we believe in this and uh, we're here to help. And so I just certainly could not be doing this by myself. Yeah. I, I'm reminded of um, in 2000 and 
2003. Yeah, because my daughter was still a newborn. In 2003, uh, I went to India with a bunch of other youth pastors to help lead like a youth conference there. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, I was in a mega church at the time and there were two, there were two others on the trip. And one of them was involved in church planting, was already like a church planner. And one of them was preparing to church plant. And first of all, they wore us out. Cause like anytime there was downtime, they were the two church planters over there just talking about church hmm. planting. <laughs> but I also remember just having this experience of, they're crazy. I could never do that. Right. Like that's, that sounds so risky and requires so much. And then I found myself, you know, a few years later partnering with somebody else to church plant and then mm-hmm. on my own church. plant. And, but all of that, yeah, all of that fear that I would have had about it, all of the craziness that I thought they were communicating once I felt that, burden for it or once I felt that sense of calling for it was a totally different thing, right? And that kind of what I feel like I hear you saying is like this this vision for something has been birthed in your soul by the Spirit. And so, that changes what it looks like to do something that feels unattainable. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you hear people talk about in various contexts, like, um, like, there's a sense in which I could, couldn't not do this. I mean, you know, you hear about like the disciples when, you know, Jesus says to them, like, what are you, are you also going to leave? And then they're mm-hmm. like, well, like what else is there? There's nothing else yeah. left in a lot of ways. That's how my life feels right now is because I've sort of pushed all of my chips into the center of the table. Mm-hmm. I've committed publicly internally to everyone who will listen, this is what I will do the rest of my life. So I've said that over and over and over again enough times to say, I, I don't think I can not, not do this, you know? Um, so, and yet there's still an act of my will every single week to get up and like do the work and, and it's real, it's a real joy. So I, um, the kind of transformation that we're getting to see in people who go through our process our initial six month discernment process is called postulancy. And it, it, uh, it, it welcomes people in a cohort model through our, our shared rule of life in the order of the common life. And we're just finishing up um, some cohorts uh, that began in January and we're, we're allowing people to reflect on their experience. And what we're finding, you know, I get to this point every year where I'm pretty tired um, and then I hear the kind of work that it has been doing on people. And I'm just, um, I'm just floored at yeah. the transformation that happened. So, yeah, that's, that's always, I, I that's always nice. So energizing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's hear a little bit about what are your own, what are your own rhythms look like? You know, I, I'm even going to change my question that I normally ask. I ask, what are your personal or inner rhythms, but you're being very intentional and not just about personal or inner rhythms, but shared rhythms. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how do you find and how do you choose which personal rhythms make the most sense for you and which rhythms do you need to have within, you know, this community that you've cultivated? Yeah. Yeah. Let me start with the community thing first, um, because right now we are primarily a dispersed order. Um, Mm. So we don't have like a shared living space. I mean, there are, you know, a number of people in my own city who are part of the order of the common life, but we've got folks in, in Austin and we've got folks mm-hmm. in Chicago and New York and Amsterdam and the UK and um, all throughout the Midwest. And so the idea is that we have a shared and common rule of life, but the way that we each practice our commitments to that rule of life looks a little differently. And I think this gets at some of the question you're asking. So for example, we have a commitment to uh, prayer, but the way I flesh that out in my life might look differently than the way that you might flesh that out in your life. Um, And the truth is, is that for me, that changes. It kind of changes seasonally. So there are some seasons where I'm really drawn to praying the hours and I'll, mm-hmm. you know, I'll pick up an, a book of hours, like the book of common prayer or mm-hmm. return to this 
Phyllis Tickle books and yeah. pray morning prayer and evening prayer by myself. Um, uh, but I'm currently in a season where the, the most fruitful way of praying for me is, um, is just a centering prayer in the morning and, um, and some, some prayer around memorizing scripture. Hmm. And so, um, so every morning without really without fail, my primary first thing that I do is about 20 to 30 minutes of just quiet centering prayer. Um, sometimes I'll use, a uh, a prayer bracelet and pray, pray the Jesus prayer that kind yeah. of centers me. Yeah. Um, you know, I'll just be really, you know, really candid. I like, like others, uh, you know, the pandemic sort of is triggered a bit of anxiety for me. So I have, yeah, yeah. I have dealt with some increased anxiety in my life over the past two to three years. Um, I think there's some substantial reasons for that, but what I have found is that the thing I need the most at the, at the first part of my day is just a time of centering to be mm. in the presence of God without saying much. And so yeah. that's, that's how I start my day is centering prayer. How, how did you learn centering prayer? I mean, you mentioned Dave Nixon earlier. Was that, I mean, I, I don't, I've read much about centering prayer, um, I don't know that you can learn centering prayer just from reading about it. So I'm curious what it's looked like for yeah. you to learn it. Yeah, I think it's um I think I primarily learned it through practice. Yeah. And um trying to sit quietly and silently and then reaching for some texts that articulate like what's actually going on here. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember when I first started centering prayer, I was frustrated by the distractions of my mind. Yeah. Um and then I and then I learned through the experience of others who then wrote about it is that actually the distractions are just part of the prayer. Yeah. And I think I came across this one thing that was so freeing to me. It's like, rather than get frustrated by the distractions when you're sitting quietly in God's presence, if you could just reframe that as rather than like, I got distracted 50 times. It's like, no, I had 50 opportunities to, to draw my attention mm. back to God. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, I can do that. Like, that's, you know, that's great. And so I think it does come with practice. And and then you just begin to to notice what's happening there over time. And there are, there are times in my own life where um, centering prayer feels like it's accomplishing something. And then there are times when it feels like it's accomplishing absolutely nothing. Mm. And regardless of what, like, this is part of what the contemplative muscle that we're training, I think is meant to do is like, we just, we just keep showing up. And regardless of whether we think anything is happening, we just trust that, that God is doing something there in a way that we just can't maybe even articulate. And yeah. that's been true for me, I think. Yeah. What, I mean, you've talked about how some of your practices might shift from time to time. And I'm curious, how do you, like, say you've been in a season of centering prayer and you're hitting dryness with it, perhaps. How do you determine I need to push? I, I need to I need to move on to another practice for a season because this one has become dry versus I need to spend more time here because I'm meeting some resistance and there's likely some fruitfulness on the other side of this. Yeah. So for centering prayer, it, centering prayer at this point is like nothing. It would it would not be something I, I would set aside regardless of its fruitfulness. I might add, you know, maybe longer periods of scripture reading or yeah. like I've recently added some scripture memory. Mm. Um, so I'd, I'd, I'm trying to memorize the book of John that will probably take me, you know, three or four years. Sure. Yeah. But, um, but centering prayer, regardless of whether it's fruitful or not, is something I'm just going to continue to, to do because it's such a habit at this point. Yeah. Um, it feels like eating for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, maybe that's not very helpful, but that's sort of how my, that's how I think about this particular prayer practice. Right. Um, but it's, I mean, I would take that to say you probably have stuck with it through some times of dryness. Yeah, right? for some sure. Times of, I mean, you talk about anxiety. That's one of the things I'm, I've experienced in my own centering prayer practice that I feel like I'm starting to finally move past, which is when I, do that first thing in the morning and I just stop. It actually starts to surface all of these other things that 
cause me stress, you know that's what I mean? Right. And then they become distractions. And so that's a season to push through. Um, I'm learning slowly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, and then when we notice that those things come up in the centering prayer, then we, we then carry those into our day Yeah. in conversational prayer. And so like one of the other rhythms is that I um, am fortunate that I have an office uh, that is about a 12 minute walk mm. from my house. And so um, I walk to and from work every single yeah. day. And then yeah. I also walk, um, at various times throughout the day. So anytime I have a break, like a 10 or 15 minute break, I'll just do a quick walk hmm. as a check-in, um, you know, leave my phone behind yeah. so I don't get drawn into, you know, Instagram or, you know, one yeah, of the, yeah. the tech platforms. But, um, so that would be another rhythm that has been very meaningful to me. Um, and walking and praying is, has been helpful. I, I can't even tell you how many times walking has come up on this podcast. Yeah, is that right? Yeah, it is so common. Why why do you think um for you, why do you think walking feels so important or so relevant? Yeah, I mean I can answer that in a couple of different ways. I mean, just experientially, um, you know, I think any time that we can get into our body a little bit more in this present day where we, you know, you and I are separated by thousands of miles and connecting mm-hmm. on a screen. Yeah. I think anytime that we can be in our body, fully present in our body, um, you know, feet touching the earth. Yeah. Um, it's helpful. Um, recently I've, I've, uh, read some things that have made me more curious about the role of walking because I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of bilateral stimulation in, in like, uh, like an EMDR practice. So, yeah. Yeah, I had a spiritual director, director mention that one time about, because I was riding my, exercise bike every day and yeah thought, hey that could actually be good at prayer practice so yeah so like there's something in our brains um you know that uh therapists are discovering um through emdr mm-hmm. um th- there's something about our emotions that like what's called bilateral stimulation and walking is bilateral stimulation because it's like you've it's so, and it's, it's a beauty of God's design. It's like we are walking step by step and our, our brain is being bilaterally stimulated uh, mm. because one foot is receiving a sensation and then the other foot is receiving a sensation and then the other foot. And that back and forth, um, I think, is a beautiful, beautiful way of, of just praying um, and giving us some space to be attentive to God. Yeah. Yeah. There's a... Um... Uh, I'm not going to ask that question. I'm not going to. I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. I go down yeah. rabbit trails sometimes, Jared. That's okay. Really, I did too. It was really bad when I was preaching because there was always something in the sermon that was not in my notes. So that was a running joke. Um, all right. So, so we've been talking a little bit about your your own personal practices, um, but I'd love to hear then about what does it look like for your practices to be. And again, I understand your personal practices are part of what it means to be in the order. Mm-hmm. Um, but perhaps setting this question up, it would also be a good time to talk about, you know, the new book you have coming out this fall, Finding Freedom and Constraint, because it it seems like this talks a little bit more about what does it look like to walk alongside others towards your own formation. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I think this is coming out of a, a realization for me that so much of the spiritual formation conversation tends to to position us thinking that our formation is actually like a singular thing that we do by ourselves. Yeah. And I think the beauty of the monastic tradition and the tradition of the religious orders is that um, they basically said, that's not possible. Like you cannot actually be formed by yourself. And yeah. one of the things I say in the book is obviously, you know, with, with someone like a Dallas Willard or Richard Foster who have been drawing on that tradition and who gifted us with such wonderful uh, books to introduce the evangelical world, particularly to that tradition, you know, and I I don't mean this as a critique at all. I think it's more of a virtue of, of, uh, of just sort of a first go at it. But most of the conversation around spiritual disciplines is very individualistic. Yes. It's like, what are my spiritual disciplines? And even the way that many people talk about rule of life these days, we, we often hear it talked about a, uh, my, my own personal rule of life. And I, I think that's 
it can be a helpful place to start is to think about rhythms and to think about the way that you specifically, you know, want to live your life and to maybe to create some framework around that. But I think my slight pushback to that is that historically it's never really been the case um, with the, a few exceptions. It's mm-hmm. primarily been practiced um, together in community. A rule of life is not what I do by myself. It's what we do together, even though there are things that I do by myself. And so I'm trying to flesh that out and to pull on that thread in this next book and to, to even think about how we community uh, communally will be able to practice things like um, solitude and silence or mm-hmm. a commitment to simplicity. Yeah. We do it through spiritual friendship. Yeah. We, we do it through recognizing that um, if I'm committed to, for example, uh, getting underneath complexities that I might have in my relationship to food and alcohol or technology or my relationship to possessions, for example. These mm-hmm. are some of the ones that I um, that I cover. The commitment to simplicity is to simplify my relationship to those things. Um, where has my relationship to food, for example, become complex? I think many people would recognize that they have a complex relationship with food. Um, but rather than trying to think about that by myself, what would it look like for me to ask that question among other people who are asking the same question. And then for us to be together in this commitment to ask God, God, could you do whatever it is that you would want to do in each of us around some of the complexity that we experience um, with food or alcohol or how much money we have in the bank. Um, So I'm trying to bend that conversation towards a, a communal way of life. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm struck by your taking. I, I just finished reading uh, "Desiring God's Will" by David Benner, and mm. I appreciate how much he talks about part of our formation is just being attentive to the Spirit, right? And we yeah. don't do that well. Um, and so I was I was just soaking in that and loving that because I, I resonate with that. But that's a hurdle, and then you're also inviting people to a level of vulnerability, which mm-hmm. is another hurdle. And it seems like there's potentially so much flourishing on the other side of that. But you're inviting people to move through the resistance to attentiveness to even be aware of their own relationship with food or whatever it might be. Yeah. And then to invite other people into that. Um, how, how hard are you finding it to invite people to that? Um, and how much resistance do you find people have even in the midst of the process? Yeah, I mean, I don't have... I don't find it hard to personally invite people to that um, because I've seen how transformational it is for people. If they can, if they can just move through some of the resistance, um, you know, I grew up in a tradition where at least the meaning that I made in my early years as a, as a Christian was that, you know, whatever is going on, that's not going well inside of me. Um, Part, part of what I have to do in order to, to fit in here is I have to keep all that stuff hidden. Yeah. And I think that's many people's experience. Um, Especially if you're in ministry, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Even before ministry, though, it's like yeah. just what it means to be a Christian felt like, you know, I'm not supposed to be messed up. I'm not supposed to have these challenges. And I think what I've learned over the years, both pastorally and in spiritual direction, is if we could, if we could get past that and we can just embrace the reality that um, we have woundedness inside of us Mm. and we have brokenness and that that is the very place that God is going to meet us. Um, And that other people have the same thing. Then why, why would we not be able to share our experience of discovering that together and share our experience of allowing God to heal that, um, in us. And it just seems like the whole thing that Jesus is doing is he's creating a context where we start to learn that we actually can't receive that work of healing um, apart from people. Yeah. Um, and apart from the image of God that, that we each share reflecting, reflecting back uh, to us. 
what is true of us, which is that yeah. you're made in the image of God, you're a loved son or daughter of God, um, and I'm here to help you sort some stuff out. I'll be present to you as God loves you into into being what you always meant to be. Yeah. You know, I mean, even the image of God requires some degree of mutuality, right? It, it's God is relationship. So, That's right. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I mentioned to you before we started recording that. Um, Rather than do church membership and the church plant I did in Austin, you know, mm. we worked towards what does it look like for us to have this shared commitment to what we called the common life, which was mm-hmm. like a shared rule of life. And um, some people embrace that. Um, it, you know, I told you it didn't go well, mostly because of my own <laughs> life disruptions, I think, in leading that. But some people embraced it, but there's always, and I experienced this before in another church as well. There was a lot of resistance to the idea of I'm going to be in covenant. And we didn't even use the word covenant, but I'm going to be in this shared commitment with you. And, you know, you said you started this in 2011, um, I think. And I'm curious if post-pandemic, if you're finding that there's more openness to what the order of the common life is trying to do and people are seeing a value and a need for it that they might not have felt in 2017 or 18. Yeah, I think, um, and you make a good point. And just, just to be clear, I started working on this in 2011. <laughs> fair, fair. Started but, dreaming it in 2011. Yeah. And we, we published our first rule of life in 2014 and um, it's probably 2018, 2019 that we first started feeling like, okay, like this feels like it's touching something that people want. Yeah. Um, and now we're, we're in a season where we're trying to catch up to what feels like, oh man, people really want this. Fantastic. Yeah. So I think, yes, there's something, you know, you know, we could, we could go and we could look at all sorts of research that's been done through the pandemic, post pandemic. People are absolutely lonely. And um, there's something about our relationality that was lost in the pandemic. And so I do think people are hungry for, for deep things and deep relationships right now. And what we're experiencing in our cohorts, for example, our postulancy cohorts, which begin each January, what we're experiencing is um, that people slowly um, really open up and sure. we design that process in a way that they slowly are able to do that in a safe environment. Um, and in a, in a very invitational way. So we're not, you know, saying this is what you have to do. We just say, Hey, we're inviting you to try this over the next couple of weeks. And then we're going to come together and we're going to talk about it. Yeah. And um, I think that invitational spirit is what is what does the most unearthing for people. Yeah. Um, because I think they have this framework around, monasticism or religious order that it's that it's rigorous in some in some way and that's not to say that it's not but um but that's not coming from me it's not coming from us what we what we're trying to do as you said earlier is we're trying to help people attend to the work of the spirit inside of them yeah and so that's our primary work yeah yeah well, I wonder, I wonder um, knowing, seeing what time it is, I wonder if you can take, you know, we've talked a lot around, you know, and you talked about your book, but I wonder if you could just give like, what is, what is your um, introductory talk when somebody says, order of the common life, what's that? Like if somebody's going, I'm, I think I might want to be a part of that. What would that look like for me? Why don't you give a little description of that? Yeah. Um, so if the way, the way that we, we often say this is, is if you could imagine the Jesuits or the Franciscans um, birthed in the 21st century out of a more charismatic context. That's what the order of the common life is. And at the center of what we're doing is that we just believe that the primary way that people change is through the experience of the love of God. And this is as best as I can tell the thing that is most prevalent through all of the traditions of of the monastic and religious order tradition that at the heart of each of these is a desire for God and a desire to be met in God's love. And so you think about the Franciscans or the Jesuits or the Cistercians, these are all orders that were in the Catholic 
tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we get access to that um, in a very real and historic way outside of the Catholic Church? Our effort is to try to answer that question. And so um, we're recontextualizing the whole tradition um, in a way that we think is understandable, but also full of integrity to what the tradition has, has already birthed in, into the church. Um, so our process uh, begins with, like I, like I mentioned, six months of discernment with a group of people um, through a cohort expression, working through our rule of life, thinking about our rhythms of life. So we have shared four, four shared rhythms of work, prayer, study, and rest. And we just help people think about how their life is going. And is there an invitation to this way of life together? Yeah. And we just slowly lead people through that process. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love it. I Like I like I mentioned to you earlier, I think before we're recording, if that's one thing we learned from COVID is we can have meaningful connection with others distance over mm-hmm. a distance on zoom. It doesn't replace, you know, in person, but yeah. there's some good possibility there. I, I wonder how, um, how you would say that the order of common life might exist alongside someone's church, church experience. Like, is it, mm-hmm. would you hope that people in a church do it together? Would you hope that it's just something separate? Would you imagine it might replace church for somebody? What does that look like? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so let me be really clear. We would never want this to replace church. I figured you'd say that. but <laughs> Yeah, this is, I am so uh, on board and believe in the local church. I know that um, the church in our context in America is having a bit of a moment right now. Yeah, and yeah. Um, But our, our desire is that this could be, you know, this is a very much longer conversation, but... Um, you know, monastic orders, religious orders, nobody would, would look at somebody who's become a Jesuit, for example, and, and say that they are not a part of the church. Um, the religious orders are just are part of the church, you know, yeah. universal. And so we really believe that, um, that this is an expression of sort of big C church. Mm-hmm. But we want that to stand alongside and support um, the local congregation. And so one of our commitments actually within our rule of life is service to the church. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to draw people into this way of life, um, give people access to the experience of the love of God through the contemplative life. Yeah. And then that they would become an evangelist for the love of God in their local church and in their city. And our hope long-term is that in the cities where we see some fruit, you know, like, for example, we have a small contingent of folks in Austin, since, you know, mm-hmm. you were in Austin for a while. Yeah. The hope is that five to six to seven years from now, that there could be 40 or 50 members of the Order of the Common Life in Austin attending a vast variety of churches. Yeah. But that there's something, um, and this is an analogy I use in the book, it's that, is that a f- in order for a fire to burn really, really hot, it needs a hearth. And a hearth is this sort of container for a fire. Um, And if you enclose and constrain a fire, it actually burns hotter. And so Hmm. what we hope is that the order of the common life could provide a bit of a hearth for people who want to do this kind of work. That that causes people in a city to burn really, really hot with the love of God. And then that becomes a service to the church in ways that people get to imagine in their local context. Yeah. So, That's great. Yeah. And, it, and it, it'll require some imagination for churches because our, you know, in our, in our modern time in North America, that all the churches think of themselves so isolated and independent. They exist. Yeah. And, and I don't mean this as a, as a negative critique statement, but they exist so much for themselves. So the idea of what a religious order within or alongside a church might look like, I think it's harder for us to even imagine, you know, mm-hmm. and it just takes some work as opposed to, the Catholic church being this large entity and they, they could exist within it. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I think about a lot. And I think it's, it's just a matter of patience. I mean, the, the Catholic church is built for this Yeah, and we are not built for this. Yeah. Yeah. And so my hope is that um, over time that 
we learn how to tell our story in a way that gives people the imagination of like, oh, like we could have this too, even though there's something that happened in the Reformation that that means that we that we don't presently have it. Hmm. Like maybe people could get the imagination of like, oh, like we could we could actually do this. Yeah. And yeah. so I do think it'll take time. But I, I, I think it's I mean, I love it. I, I love what you're doing. Um I think it's, I think it's, I, I was uh, in a church history class. I, I know we need to wrap up here. <laughs> I have to move on to things too. But uh, in a church history class, I remember learning about the catechumenate, you know, mm. many years ago and mm-hmm. thinking, why don't we have something like that now? And mm. that's kind of what this feels like. Um, yeah. You, you were kind enough, I'll say this in closing, you were kind enough to arrange to have a, you know, early PDF of your book sent to me. Um, and like I told you, I've skimmed it and only read the introduction, but the out of the gate, you say, this is the first line, first paragraph of the introduction. The goal of Christian spiritual formation is to learn to experience the love of God and to learn to love as God loves. I imagine that's something you say a lot, um, mm-hmm. but I, I love that because what I'm finding in my own life, what I'm finding in spiritual direction is so many people are focused on I just want to love God or so many people are focused on maybe their work in ministry. I just need to love people. Mm. Um, but we just glaze over that, learn to experience the love of God. Um, and I, you've mentioned so many times today. I, I imagine you're aware of this because it seems like you've oriented your whole self to this, but the heart of your work being experience the love of God first and yeah. then everything else comes out of that. And I think that's part of what's lost. And I think that's part of what, is making your work really meaningful right now. So mm, thanks thank for what you're doing. Thank you so much. And I love the way you just said that, um, oriented my whole life towards that. I mean, I, there's probably nothing more true that you could say about me than that. Yeah. Is that, that feels like it takes up the most space. Um, but then, I mean, we, we love because he first loved us. And yes. so this just yeah. feels like the gospel to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, if anybody wants to learn more about this, where should they go? Yeah, uh, my website's really easy, jaredpatrickboyd.com. Yeah. And there's a, there's links to all of the, the work that I do there. And the book it comes out in September? September 12th is release September date. September 12th. All right. Yeah. Jared, thank you so much. It's great to meet you. Yeah, man, it's great to spend time with you. Thanks, John. Yeah.